Please turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts, and we'll read the first eight verses of the first chapter. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit that, that was given to all of Your people after Christ ascended back into heaven. And Father, we... We know that you have, by your grace, put your spirit within us as believers. And, and that is where we, uh, Father, learn and grow and are changed as your spirit works within us. And Father, we praise you also that we can be here listening to the word being preached. And Father, we ask that you would, by your spirit in us, take this word and the, the, the sermon that we are to listen to and you would change us by it, that you would sanctify us, that you would give us a greater vision of yourself, and that you would cause us to love you more, um, to think of heaven more frequently and more uh, longingly, and then also, Father, to increase in our love for those around us. Um, first and foremost, for the lo- our love for the church body, but then also, Father, a love for the world that causes us to share the truth of the gospel with them. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in us this morning, and we thank you that we can be here with each other um, listening to your word, and we just praise you for all that you are doing. In the name of Christ, amen. Okay, could we turn to the book of Galatians? Galatians chapter 5. We'll continue where we left off. Verse number 16, Galatians 5, and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
in things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. You know, the Scripture reminds us, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, which is a blessing to me as a reader, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. You know, just reading of the Word in and of itself should have a, an effect upon us. It ought to. Paul says to Timothy to give attendance to public reading. There's something special about the Word, isn't it, for the child of God. It should resonate with us. It should move us. That should be sufficient. It's the powerhouse of God and it's riveted in our souls. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Flesh and spirit seem to be the two categories that one could be in. What category do you think you fit in best? Would you be mocked more by in the flesh or by in the spirit? It's really a searching question. Now, let's, let's get our bearings correct here. Once we are saved, we now become spiritual children. We are spiritual. We're not any longer in flesh spiritually. We're not dead in our sins any longer. We're alive in Christ. But yet, there's still a part of us that could draw back to our former ways. We wish, don't we, that we could kind of just turn it off like a water faucet where you have the cold and the hot. And sometimes you know when you're going in the wrong direction, you wish you could just switch the channel, don't you? you could just shut the cold water off, turn the hot water on, or vice versa, whatever it is. It's not that easy, is it, sometimes? And we know ourselves, if we're careful about ourselves and we're conscientious about our Christian walk, we can sense, can't we, when we get into a state of the flesh versus being in a state of the Spirit. It may sound a little contradictory in some ways, but let me read what Charles Spurgeon wrote in regards to this subject. These are his own words that he says about himself. I know in my own soul that I feel myself to be like two distinct men. There is the old man as base as ever and the new man that cannot sin because he is born of God. I cannot myself understand the experience of those Christians who do not find a conflict within. For my experience goes to show this, if it shows anything, that there is an incessant contention between the old nature, oh, that we could get rid of it, and the new nature, for the strength with God be thanked, do you not find it so? It's quite a sentence, isn't it? That incessant contention between the old nature and the new nature. 
would be another way of putting what we're contrasting, what Paul is contrasting here in Galatians, that is between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh, or living in the Spirit or living in the flesh. Look at this picture with me. There we go. Is that the right one? Hold on. No. I want the one before this one. Here we go. Now, a lot of you have quoted this in the past, I'm sure, and you're very familiar with this portion. Let's read it together. Or let me read it for you, rather. And I want you to uh, notice these uh, bold printed words. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Hmm. 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Man, that sounds like a schizophrenic, doesn't it? The things that you want to do, you can't do. The things that you don't want to do, you end up doing. It sounds like there's a swirling of uncertainties about this state of this person that Paul's describing. And of course, it's a very debatable portion. Martin Lloyd-Jones is very emphatic that it's it's an unregenerate, or is it regenerate? I forget if he believes it's a regenerated or an unregenerated, but there are good expositors on both sides who believe that these are characteristics of an unregenerated person. Some want to apply these words like, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, some have tried to make a parallel between Romans 7 here and what we read in Galatians chapter 5, which says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would or the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Some have tried to draw a direct parallel between Galatians 5 and Romans chapter 7 here. I do. I think that's an inaccurate inaccurate analogy. I don't think that this is normal Christianity. It's definitely a stage that somebody is in. Some have believed that Paul is referring to his pre- pre-converted days as he's coming to faith in Christ. Some have thought that it's believers in general prior to their coming to full-fledged understanding of the gospel. Some believe it's an unregenerated person under the law who's struggling to try to obey the law but doesn't have the power. And some believe that it's a Christian who finds himself in this daily kind of a life conflict between doing what is right and what is wrong and carrying it out. I'm not of that opinion, and for for strong reasons I disagree with that last opinion. 
because of Galatians chapter 5, this is a very clear portion of the word. Paul in Romans is dealing specifically with a certain situation that he's trying to address there, like he is in Galatians 5, no doubt about it. But here, I believe, is where you have the normal Christian life. You do have that battle. Brother Spurgeon brought that out about the old man and the new man, the old nature and the new nature. We do have two natures once we get saved. We, we have one added. We wish we had the old one subtracted. Or I should say erased. But it's only overthrown or overridden by the new man, the new nature. As it says in 1 John 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So whether we realize it or not, we have an innate power given to us from God. I shouldn't say innate. It's an installed power that the Lord gives to us when we become children of the living God. That's why it says in 1 Peter 1, 3, or is it 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The way Romans chapter 7 portrays this person is definitely in a defeatist category. I think the way Paul is portraying the person in Roman, in, in Galatians 5 is a victorious way for the Christian life to be lived. Now that's not to say that we're not going to have falls and that we're not going to stumble. Absolutely. Our life will be like this. There's a tug of war going on inside of us. And if we don't sense that struggle, we might want to ask ourselves, am I really born again? Because I'm just, I'm just the way I used to be before. I still have those same characteristics and I haven't shaken them. I'm just like I was. I think when we get saved, there's going to be another influence now in our lives that makes our lives feel like we're being taken in different directions. One side, you could say, is the flesh. The other side is the spirit. One side's the flesh, one's the spirit. And that becomes challenging to us. William Hendrickson said, A person enjoys true freedom when the Holy Spirit has taken the helm of the ship which bears him over the troubled sea of life. A person enjoys true freedom when the Holy Spirit has taken the helm of the ship which bears him over the troubled sea of life. We can't emphasize enough um, of the influence of the Holy Spirit. You didn't just change because you reformed your life. Some people can reform their lives. Uh, I'm talking about in general. Uh, you want to make changes in your life. You want to change maybe your uh, your sleep schedule. You want to discipline yourself in certain ways. You want to lose weight. You want to exercise. You want to do this or that in life. Sure, that's a possibility. No doubt about that. We can all be working on that. A- anyone for that matter. But when it comes to the things of God and pleasing Him, and walking in that new nature that we have, There has to be some diligence on our end. And this is where I think we have this kind of struggle where which side are we giving into? There's definitely going to be the pull in the opposite direction. And there is similar like language. I agree with Romans chapter 7, but I don't think it's close enough that we can say that they are identical. And so let's be careful to not try to use Romans 7 as sort of a scapegoat. Like, well... Even Paul said that he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. I think that's an erroneous 
attitude and a misleading one and a one that can give us a sense of self, uh, self-satisfaction. Well, you know, I did it and it's expected that I would do it. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think here where it says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the Bible talks about the human heart as a treasure. And out of it comes certain things. As it says here, Jesus' words, when, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6.21, where Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because where your treasure is, that's a good, good searching question, is your treasure here or is your treasure there? But lay up for yourself the treasure in heaven. If you don't, you lay it up on earth. Either way, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. And sometimes we as believers can be overly earthly minded and our treasures become in this life only. And that's why we can, we, we sometimes view death so, uh, over soberly or somberly, I should use that word, because we don't realize that the Lord tells us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. My hope on nothing less is built than Jesus and the bloody spill. So I have that assurance that when I meet death, I can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where our treasure is, is where our heart will be also. Now, let's look at these uh, vices of the past, uh, the treasure that can come out of the human heart. In the next slide here. Um, yeah, there we go. The works of the flesh. This is really the portion of the Scripture, kind of where the rubber meets the road, you could say. The flesh and the spirit, the battle of the two natures that go on in the life of the Christian. And here are the works of the flesh, and we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit as a contrast. Interesting that it uses the word works here. I like to think of it as it's uh, the work is sort of like a uh, a grinding. Uh, works are a grinding out of the flesh, whereas when we get to the fruits, we'll see that it, fruit springs from the Holy Spirit. The works of the flesh. These. This is just a representative list. Paul's not being definitive. He's not covering every sin of every Christian. And of course, these are first century identifications. But many of them, of course, apply to us, if not all of them. Some of them more so than others. Now, the first category, I think we can categorize all of these. I think there's a total of about 15, if I remember. What, eight? Yeah, there's 15. So, you can break them up into three different, four different categories. The first is sexual sins. Interesting that that's put first. For all that is in the world, it says in 1 John, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. Here it is right here at the top of the list. The sexual sin is immorality, one, impurity, two, indecency, three. That's the works of the flesh. That flesh hasn't disappeared, by the way. It's still there. We still can be attracted to a lot of these things. Of course we can. But the remedy is to walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit. Here, the second category is the religious deviations, you could call them. Idolatry 
and sorcery. Now, probably few of you have been involved with sorcery, but let's put ourselves back in the first century with both of these two categories. And of course, this gives also the understanding that the readership that Paul was addressing was not strictly Jews. Jews would likely not fall into that category as a Gentile would, nor sorcery, likely in general, those things would be so frowned upon, whereas in the pagan world, idolatry and sorcery was sort of like an everyday of life for them. Improprieties. Now these really hit home. Hatred, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, factions, envy. Boy, uh, that really kind of cuts into the deeper parts of our inner man. And we have to ask ourselves, are any of these adjectives descriptive of us now who should no longer be acting in the works of the flesh, that grinding out of the flesh shouldn't be something characteristic of us. But it's good to be reminded that we've come out of Egypt, we've come out of bondage, and that's what Paul, I think, is trying to promote here in his epistle in general. And then we get the fourth category. From We move from improprieties to the intemperance, where we have these two, drunkenness, and carousings. And that carousings would be like the party lifestyle, like hooping it up, drinking and carousing and drugging and, and uh, having a lifestyle of that sort, which shows us that first century people, this was their life. We could have our own list. Like I said, this is just a representative list of all kinds of sorts of works of the flesh. We have our own list in our day And I think we have to plug them in too and realize that that is the work of the flesh. Now, let's look at the the counterpoint to the works of the flesh that I would like to spend the most of the time on. And it's it's a portion that we're all familiar with. Probably many of you have taught it, gone through uh, personal classes, uh, Bible studies or small groups or whatever, and you've talked about this, and that is in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, um, it's interesting that the word is singular here, the fruit of the Spirit, and then we have nine different identifications or items that are listed here. The works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. The flesh versus the Spirit. Interesting that the flesh activities is called the works. The activity of the Spirit is called fruit. It tells us in Proverbs 11.30 that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Jesus describes Himself, I am the true vine and you are the branches. And every branch that beareth fruit are the ones that abide in Him. So we are spoken of as a fruit tree. And a fruit tree should bring forth multiple fruits. Now I was hoping that our farmer would have been here, Todd, I have a lesson for him today, but since he's not here, I might have to pick on Fred, although I don't know if that you had much to do with agriculture, right, Brother Fred? A little bit? You grow things out of the ground? 
the Leos do I know that and all of you gardeners out there. This is something you've never heard of before. You ready for this one? Do you believe that a tree can bring forth multiple fruits, varieties of fruits? The same tree planted in the ground that sprouts up, can it bring forth multiple fruits or only one kind of fruit? Can it, can a tree be both an apple tree, a pear tree, a plum tree? Can it have multiple fruits on it? Okay, I'm gonna prove you wrong. Hold on. Did we skip one here, brother? Yeah, there we are. Now, you wouldn't know what this is because you're not good farmers and you don't know that things like I know. But this is what is called a Sam Van Aken tree. A-K-E-N is the last name. Happens to be a pro- who was a professor uh, at Syracuse University. He was an artist and he got into... Uh, plant and planting and he planted a tree and what he did was he processed it so that what he did is he grafted things into the tree and this is known as a Sam Van Aken tree of 40 fruits there are 40 different fruits that are growing off of this tree some of them are things like did I write them yeah cherries plums apricots peaches almonds all coming from the same tree well I know it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? And the only reason why I'm bringing that up is because I think we need to understand that the fruit of the Spirit, and I like to put like an S inside parentheses, because there are multiple ways in which the Spirit functions within us. It processes things in a way so that we are multifruitful. There's one tree, it's fruitful, but there are many different categories of fruit bearing that come forth from this tree. See, sometimes we think of, and here they are, by the way, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Did I miss some there? Where's love? Where's joy? Is that the one before? What happened? Nope. Okay. They should have all been on that list. But anyway, it's right here in the Scriptures anyway. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's the kind of fruit that should be produced in the life of a believer. And again, there's significance, I think, in the, men- the first mention of the first item, and that is love. One of the NIV translations, I'm not sure if it's a current one or a past one, you might check your own translation, but it has a colon after the word love. Because the translators apparently believe that everything springs from love, all the rest of the virtues, the joy, the peace, the patience, and so on, all come from the love. Well, the love we know comes from the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who produces a fruit. So regardless of whether we want to say that the love is a derivative or the Spirit is a derivative from which all the rest flow, it seems to me that the Spirit would be more likely the one from which all of these fruits, I'm going to say plural, because they vary from one another. 
There's a similarity, of course, and they all are categorized as good fruits, as good things. But these are very searching to us again as we contrast this with the flesh, the sensuality, the, uh, look at some of these words, uh, the enmity, the strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all those improprieties are in strong contrast to the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such, there is no law. Can we get back to these pictures? (laughs) Um, The one with it, there we go. See, some seem to think that the jewels are like various fruits of the production of the Spirit of God within us. And it is in a way, but it's also... There's a picture that's missing here, I think. No, that's okay. Get that picture of the jewel, the jewels. Now, there are ten of them here. There's only nine mentioned here as far as uh, the different uh, virtues. But they each bear their own semblance. They have their own characteristics. But rather than thinking of individual jewels, it's better to think of one jewel that's multifaceted, that has various colors to it, rather than independent of one another. So that the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily generate these things in you independently of the other virtues, but rather they're all lumped together as one and they operate simultaneously. And I know it's it's good for us to do an inventory on ourselves as I look at this and I say, do I have love? Do I have joy? Do I have peace in my heart and with others? Am I a patient person? Do I have kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Wow. Those are mighty high virtues and standards of king for kingdom people. These are the things that should mock us. These aren't things that we have to go to school for. We don't have to train ourselves, so to speak. These are things that are bred in us. The fruit of the Spirit. This is what it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we can say as we read these virtues, we can say, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There may be some of these categories here, some of these items, I should say, that we may be failing in. And so what do we do about it? Paul goes on to say in verse 24, "...and those who belong to Christ Jesus..." And only those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Have. That's a past tense. With its passions and desires. Those passions and desires would be the things that were from the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. 
So those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. That's where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. This is another way of putting it and applying it to everyone else. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Which indicates that not everybody belongs to Christ Jesus. I've been uh, having some wonderful visits with a Catholic priest who's been trying to uh, persuade me that Jesus died for everybody, that God loves everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. I said, you cannot find that in the Bible. There are numerous scriptures that indicate otherwise. Here would be a very simple example. Those who belong to Christ Jesus implies that there are those that don't belong to Christ Jesus. So those who don't belong to Christ Jesus can't possibly be fruit-bearing in their life. It's not, it, it's not in the nature that they have to be able to produce the fruits as it's produced by the Holy Spirit. So when a non-Christian sometimes tries to imitate a Christian or the Christian life, it becomes somewhat, it comes, becomes discouraging to them because they don't have the indwelling power that accompanies the believer in Jesus Christ. We are endowed with a power from above, as our brother was reading in, in Acts chapter 1, which we think of that verse, that you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. And it's true that in the context there, the Spirit's giving there is, a, is the Spirit given for the sake of empowerment to be witnesses. Gospel witnesses. Not just gospel preaching though, which I think sometimes... I can't say it's ever over-exaggerated, but it can sometimes be minimized when we think of it that way as to how I can live out the power of the gospel in my life towards others. And this is one of the ways that that can be done. Those who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, which shows us there here that the flesh is still remnant within us. We wish we could cut the flesh off. We wish we could cut that part of us out of us. But it remains. The residue of the sinful nature of a believer is still there, latent in our lives. It can be subverted by the power of the Holy Spirit within us so that we can bring glory and honor to God. As the last verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step. I like that translation. Most of the translations translates it this way. Keep in step with the Spirit. Which tells me and you that there's a responsibility on our part. The Spirit just doesn't drag us along, puts us on a leash and says, come on, I'm taking you where you don't want to go. That's not how it should be for a believer. We say, take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Pour Your love and life into my life in a full way that I can say, Lord, I want to follow You. He that loves his life shall lose it, but he that loses his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. How can I live like that? It's only by the power of the Spirit that enables me to be able to put that old man down, that old nature down. So we're encouraged in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, sometimes we find things that we scratch our head and say, what does that have to do with us? But I think we err when we don't see things that I think have 
New Covenant application. For instance, when you look at the dietary rules of the various animals that were permissible to eat and those that were unclean that were not permissible, you're sort of like, well, but you know, that's good. That's something for the past. It doesn't have any application for me. Why is it that God says that the animal that chewed the cud has to pot the hoof in order, in order for it to be clean? What's the significance of it? Is there any spiritual lesson that we can learn from that? The mouth and the foot. I think we get this as an illustration in Galatians chapter 5. See, if we with our lips say all these nice things about Christ and about the Bible and God with our lips, but we don't pot the hoof. If we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk, we're hypocrites. We're unclean in that sense. And you know, doing a evangelism and meeting all kinds of people, you discover, like I have, people that say they're Christian and they say they believe in Jesus, that they've trusted Him, they've been saved. And then the more we, we talk about their lives, I'm thinking, you chewed the cud, but you haven't potted the hoof. Which means, you say Lord, Lord on your lips, but there's no evidence in your life that you're really a follower of Jesus. I'd rather someone not say anything about Jesus until there's evidence that they have the new life within them so that the feet and the mouth are in conjunction with one another. There's a cooperation, chewing the cud and potting the hoof. How important that is. And how is it with you and me and and our lives? Is there the one and not the other? If I had to say which one is more important... I think I'd have to say that this pot's more important, the foot, than this. Because the Bible says that we can speak, as the Scripture says, His, His, His words are as smooth as butter, but war is in His heart. So what comes out of our lips sometimes doesn't tell the whole story. It tells us in Proverbs 23, 7, For what a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's the real me inside. And the real me is going to come out right here. But what can come out of my mouth may not be reflective of what's in my heart. I can say to you, I love you, or in my heart I hate you, or I don't like you, or I don't really want to be around you, or whatever, whatever. There's there's not a, a proper correspondence between what I'm saying and what I'm believing and what I'm living. We need to keep them in harmony with one another. As believers, we need to keep them in check. How is that done? By the Spirit, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, when a slave was uh, working for his master for the sixth year, six years, then in the seventh year is a year of release for him. The slave has the option to remain in slavery under his master or he can go out free. No questions asked. Here's the door. You can go. No hard feelings. But when the slave comes to the point and says, I don't want to go out free. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I don't want to go out free. He's still a slave. 
But he loves his master. He loves his wife. He loves his children. And that's how he's going to serve his master from love. Prior to that, it was more just servitude. It was just physical labor without a hot feeling. So he tells his master, I'm not going to go free. I'm going to be your servant forever. So what does the master do? He brings him to the door and with an awl, he puts the awl through his ear and gives him a brand mark. It must have been a brand mark of some sort that identified the mark with the owner, with the master. And all of us that are saved have a brand mark. Scripture talks about having pierced their ears in Psalm 40. Mine ears hast thou dug, the King James says, meaning God has pierced our ears. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's the footwork. We hear and we follow. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Might we be chewers of the cud and be potters of the hoof? That's a clean animal. That's a clean life for the Lord. That's how we want to live. In the spirit and not in the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. That old man's not going to go away. I might even put him to sleep for a while, but look out. He's going he's to pop up. And I have to be wise enough and spiritual enough that, oh, here he's coming. I can feel it welling up in me. And I got I to, gotta, by the grace of God, by prayer, by the Word of God, and by Holy Spirit conviction, say, no, I'm not going that way. I'm putting a stop sign up. I'm not allowing myself. I'm going to button my mouth. I'm not going to say anything because that anger, that envy, that variance, uh, these different things that come out of the flesh are still very potentially there and therefore we must be always on our God. As it tells us in Ephesians, that's why we have to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That is one of our great enemies, is the flesh. But greater is He, the Spirit that is in you, than He that is in the world. So we are able to be, as the Scripture says, more than overcomers or conquerors through Him that loved us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life. Thank You, Lord, that You made Him real to us that you have opened the eyes of our understanding and gave us faith, Lord, to believe in your Son as our personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one that rules in our lives. And may we, Lord, recognize how we often fail you, Lord, and we often get discouraged and we often turn back to Egypt in our hearts and we find ourselves eating the the food of Egypt, rather than feasting on the Word of God. Lord, help us, we pray, that we might glorify You more in our lives, that we can honor You, Lord, in the short time that You have here below. Help us, Lord, that we may truly walk or stay, keep in step with the Spirit, Lord. We ask, Lord, that You would give us mouths, that we would chew the cud, that we would um, truly meditate upon Your precious Word that we would uh, regurgitate it, regurgitate it, and go over and over it again, Lord, like an animal that chews the cud cud would, Lord. Might we uh, do that as well in our lives so that, Father, we can live for You, glorify You, that we can walk the walk, Lord, and bring honor 
to your name as our Lord Jesus left us the example to do so. Hear our prayer and request, Lord, as we want to honor you in, in the days that you afford to us in this lifetime as we give you glory and honor and praise in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.